This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Today, we're going to be talking about a lot of things. We're going to be talking initially with Alyssa Lowe, who is a second-year student at the Doctor of Pharmacy program at the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at UBC, and she's also a student ambassador for the BC Pharmacy Association. She's going to talk to us about the influenza vaccine, the risks and benefits of it, and just a better understanding, especially as you age and the importance of it. And then she's going to pass the microphone to her father, Dr. Alan Lowe. Alan is a clinical associate professor with the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at UBC. He's also a primary care pharmacist at BioPro Biologics Pharmacy, and he's manager with reimbursement and medical affair service affairs with Servier Canada, and has a resume and 40 letters after his name, and it should be very interesting. Uh, Dr. Lowe is going to talk to us about how to use pharmaceuticals or avoid pharmaceuticals for healthy aging, risks and benefits of alternative medicine, and making good decisions about your health. They both care deeply about personal patient-centered medicine, so it should be a very interesting talk, and I'll pass it over to Alyssa. Well, hello everyone. My name is Alyssa and I am a pharmacy student at the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Thank you all for being here on this slightly rainy Sunday morning. And today I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about the influenza, also known as the flu. Alright, so let's start out with a basic question. What is the influenza? So influenza is a potentially dangerous disease that is caused by the influenza virus. So Symptoms for the influenza look kind of like the common cold. So there's runny nose, there's a little bit of fever, body aches, cough. However, with the influenza infection, it can actually lead to uh, worse things such as hospitalization and even death. And so in Canada, approximately 12,200 hospitalizations occur each year and 3,500 deaths related to the flu. So risk of flu-related illness is actually greater in adults over the age of 65. And that's just because as you age, your immune systems tend to become a little bit weaker. So uh, studies have, so uh, to back this up, studies have shown uh, when we do uh, look at studies in long-term care homes, the residents of the long-term care homes, 3.1, sorry, 6.4% of them Uh, become infected with the flu, whereas with the younger staff, only 3.1% of them became infected. Now we're talking about people in the same environment, so they're generally exposed to similar risks. However, we notice that your chance of getting an infection is actually almost twice as high uh, for for the older generation within those homes. And so I want to talk a little bit about how the virus works. So the virus is spread through mucous membranes. So that's like when you cough or sneeze. And sometimes it can stay for a limited amount of time on doorknobs and different objects as well. So if you touch that and it has the virus on it, and then you touch your nose or your eyes. And so for that is how the virus spreads from person to person. The virus, its main role in life is to replicate. So once it gets into your mucous membranes, it starts to replicate using your own cells. And so uh, using, your, using your own cells. So I just kind of lost my spot. 
this is my first presentation, so <laughs> thank you for bearing with me. Uh, so some of the ways that, um, so the virus replicates by using your own cells. And so it becomes a battle in your body with your immune cells versus the virus. And generally, in healthy individuals, your body wins in the end and the virus is eradicated. However, uh, some people with weakened immune systems, or even if just uh, as you age, uh, generally weakened immune system, this could take longer. So what would take a healthy person maybe five days to get rid of the virus could take longer and could make your body weaken so you're more susceptible to other infections. And that's where we get to other flu-related illnesses, such as pneumonia, which is actually one of the leading causes of death after pneumonia. Oh, sorry, after the flu. So one thing that we can do to help prevent getting the flu is just good hand hygiene, maybe avoiding that guy who's sneezing off in the corner. Uh, but another thing that we can do is we can get the flu vaccination. So what is the influenza vaccine? So what this does is it is used to stimulate antibody production within your body. So that is increasing your body's defense against uh, the flu without ever actually having to get sick. And so there are a few different versions of this. There, there are many different versions of the influenza virus, and we can't make a vaccine for all of them every year. So what we do is there are researchers who try and predict what the main strains of that virus are going to be for this coming flu season. And then they put three or four of the main viruses into the uh, vaccine. So the, this vaccine is only going to protect you against three or four of those viruses. So you may have heard of trivalent or quadrivalent uh, vac flu virus vaccines. And those ones, the trivalent protects against three different types of viruses, whereas the quadrivalent protects against four of them. And so really the efficacy of the vaccine is going to depend on how well we predicted which strains are going to be um, most common. So here's just a little bit about how a vaccine works. First, we start off with an inactive or weakened form of the virus. So now it can, can no longer cause infection in an individual. And that's actually the vaccine that we inject into your body. And now your body will recognize this as a foreign invader, and it's going to develop a defense against it. So now you didn't actually get sick because that virus is inactive, but your body has a defense now. Now, if the real virus ever comes along, your body is prepared and you have the antibodies to fight off that infection. So you could say vaccines are a little bit like a training exercise for your body, teaching you how to fight against the virus without ever having to get sick. There are a few different types of vaccinations out there. Uh, if you go to get a flu shot, you can actually get any of these and all of them will work. So there is the inactivated influenza vaccine, also known as a killed vaccine. And what that is, is a virus that they have killed in the lab so that it can no longer cause infection. That's what they'll be injecting. Another one is the live attenuated virus. So this is a real live virus, but it has been weakened in the lab so much that it can't do any harm to you. Then there are a few different types of flu shots that are now available. These are fairly recent, so I'll talk a little bit more about them in further slides. So there is a flu mist, which is a nasal spray vaccine. So you may be used to having vaccinations injected into your arm. This is one that you actually inhale in a nasal spray. We also have 
flu zone high dose seasonal influenza vaccine. So this is a flu vaccine that contains four times the amount of antigen. So like the uh, things that would cause infection, help you build an immune response to uh, the, the, uh, the virus if it ever happened. And this one has four times as much and help, hopefully helps you develop a stronger immune response to the virus. And it's available for people 65 years and older. And I will talk about that a little bit more in the later slide as well. All right, so let's talk about flu mist. This one is a hot topic because it's pretty, pretty new. Uh, according to all the research we have now, it is just as effective as the flu, uh, the flu shot, so the one that we're used to getting in our arm. And but uh, it can only be taken by individuals aged 2 to 49. And there are several people where this might not be the best option. So maybe you are hoping that, oh, I won't have to get the injection this year. I can just use flu mist. Uh, it might not be available for all people. And so there are some exceptions. You can't have it if you're under the age of 2, if you're over the age of 50, anyone with a weakened immune system, or uh, if you're a, care a caregiver for somebody who has a severely weakened immune system, you shouldn't get either. You should get the regular flu shot. And for pregnant women as well. It's important to know that these things exist. And I want to talk a little bit about coverage as well, because flu mist is actually one that is not covered in BC. So if you did want to get the flu mist option, it would be between $30 and $44. And now I want to talk a little bit about the high-dose vaccine, which is Fluzone. So it contains four times more antigen than a regular flu shot. And it's uh, suggested in the research that uh, adults 65 and older may get greater protection from this, this uh, high-dose flu shot. So you might uh, be told in the pharmacy that this, this vaccine is actually 24.2% more effective than the regular flu shot. And I just want to break that down with the numbers a little bit, because when you hear 24.2, that sounds really good. It's like, oh, I have a 24.2% less chance of getting sick and developing other diseases. Pretty good. Uh, however, in the research, what that actually means is that using the regular flu shot, 1.9% of people still got the flu. Using the high-dose flu shot, 1.4% of people got the flu. That's, that's much better, right? So there's a couple different ways you can spit. You can say, wow, this is a 24.2 more effective uh, drug. And that is, that is perfectly okay to say because that is true according to the numbers. But if you look at that, it's maybe a, uh, it seems like a smaller, smaller difference. And to put it another way, that would mean that we would have to treat uh, 200 people to see a benefit in one person. So for these, for these medications, where it's not publicly funded, so you'll have to be paying for it. It helps to talk with your healthcare provider because they can break down the numbers for you and kind of explain it to you in different ways. So if you are going to be that one in 200 people who is going to benefit from this vaccine, then it might be worth it for you to pay the 80 to $100 to get it because that could, that could be life-saving in some cases if you were going to develop a disease afterwards. However, it's a very individualized decision for some people. One in 200 might not be good enough odds for them to warrant spending about $100 on this vaccine. So that's why if, when you're talking to your healthcare providers about different flu shots or about the efficacy of different drugs to make an informed decision, you can ask them to help you understand what these numbers mean and what, what does a 24.2% effectiveness look like. So here I want to talk about who should get the flu shot. And according to Center for Disease Control, everyone six months and older should get the flu shot. 
So that means uh, that's including six-month-olds, um, uh, elderly, and pregnant women. Everyone should get the flu shot. There are certain populations that are at higher risk of getting the flu. And for those populations, we try and make it easier for you to gain access to the flu shot by having it be publicly funded. So some populations that might be at high risk, we say, is people age 65 and older, so then you can get uh, the flu shot for free, it's publicly funded. Uh, residents of long-term care facilities, children and adolescents, six months to 18 years old, uh, people with certain chronic health conditions, and pregnant women at any stage of pregnancy. And so th this is not an exhaustive list, there are actually more on the list, and uh, you, if you think that you might be one of you, you can actually look up this list on the Center for Disease Control website and find out if you can get your vaccine covered because if you can, that's a little bit of money saved and you're also benefiting yourself. And then how effective is the flu shot? So I put up, I put up a graph here showing all the way back from 2004 to 2018. So that was last year or this year actually, but this past flu season. And as I was saying before, the effectiveness of the flu vaccine really depends on how well we predicted what virus was going to be going around in your communities. And so you can see at the highest there in 2010, it was a 60% effectiveness. And you know, it, it varies. It really varies. So no one can tell you exactly how well this flu vaccine is going to work because we really don't know. We can only give it our best guess. However, we do know that if you do end up getting the flu, you have greater risk of developing, um, developing flu-related illnesses. So let's, let's look at some of the risks, all right? So we, we know that the flu shot can, uh, may be able to help you uh, not get the flu, but what, what, what are some of the side effects? What else do we need to be thinking about? There are certain injection site uh, side effects that you might think you might get. And some of those are actually just from having to inject with the needle. So there's a little bit of stinging when they put the needle in. Uh, those things kind of last uh, for a few minutes uh, to 15 minutes maybe. Uh, the side effects that may be more due to the drug are things such as a low-grade fever, nausea, headache, and muscle aches. You might be thinking, this I thought I wasn't going to get the flu. Why am I getting these side effects? Well, that's actually your body fighting back against the uh, the killed virus that, or the weakened virus that you put in. And that's a good thing because that is your body developing a, a defense. And those side effects only last about two days at most. Most people don't experience any side effects. And these side effects are much less severe than what you could get if you got the flu. And just because we like want to talk about all the risks and get a good understanding of what you're getting into. I thought I would highlight some of the more serious but rare side effects as well. So there are some al people who have allergies and might have an allergic reaction to a flu vaccine. Uh, healthcare providers are aware of this, which is usually why they keep you for 15 minutes after you've gotten the shot so that they can monitor you and make sure that uh, everything is going well. So some things that you can monitor for yourself when you get a flu vaccine is are you having difficulty breathing? Is there wheezing or hoarseness? Uh, maybe there could be some swelling around the eyes, lips. Uh, some people get hives. Um, there could be paleness, like a general weakness, fast heartbeat, and dizziness. And those are signs of an allergic reaction. Uh, if you're in the pharmacy, the healthcare provider is there to monitor for those things and uh, get you the right help if you do have an allergic reaction. 
And if you're on your own, you can call 911 and get yourself to a hospital so that they can take care of you there. So again, allergic reactions are very rare, but it's good to know about these things because if you are experiencing them, you want to know what to do. Another uh, serious side effect of flu shots that has been put forward is one study found an association with Guillain-Barre syndrome. So this is a syndrome where uh, the, your, your own immune cells start attacking your nerve cells. And so this can cause general weakness and sometimes paralysis. So there was only one study that found this, and it found that there were fewer than one or two cases per million people. And just to give you an idea of how common this, this is, uh, GBS is actually even more common when you get the flu. So people who get the, so the vaccine isn't actually giving, causing like more of a chance that you're going to get GBS because if you just naturally got the flu, your risk actually becomes higher. Uh, there are many common misconceptions about flu shots, so I thought I'd just get those out of the way right now. So first of all, will the flu shot cause the flu? And the answer is no, because the, uh, the virus that they're putting into your body with the flu shot can't hurt you because it's been weakened or it's been killed. So some people it could be a misconception because people experience the side effects and they might think that of that as the flu or they get similar symptoms. So there's a lot of different viruses or they get a virus that was not covered by this particular flu vaccine. Another common misconception is, do I need to see my doctor in order to get the flu shot? And you don't. Healthcare providers such as nurses or pharmacists are also able to give the flu shot and they are trained in what to look for, what flu shot is best for your age group, and they can talk with you about the risks and benefits too. So you don't need to go see your doctor first to get a flu shot. You can ask uh, your local pharmacist, and there's one on every corner, and generally wait times for them are lower too because they're, uh, especially if you find one of the quieter ones. <laughs> a safe way right over there. <laughs> and do healthy people still need to be vaccinated? We have this idea that, oh, I'm a strong, healthy individual. I, I can fight off the flu. And you know what? That, that may be the case, but you know, the, the flu doesn't always discriminate. It, you, everyone can be affected by the flu. And also by getting the flu shot, you could be protecting those closer to you as well. Maybe you take care of a young child or there, there's a pregnant, pregnant woman in your family, or maybe you have an elderly, uh, individuals that you hang out with. So those are people that you could be protecting by getting the flu shot as well. So everyone should be getting the flu shot, not just people who are at highest risk. And then is the flu just a bad cold? And the answer is no, because the flu, the virus that causes the flu and the virus that causes the cold are actually different. The one that causes the uh, common cold is generally milder and you won't see as many uh, severe effects from that. Whereas if you get the flu, that could lead to hospitalization and even death and is related to other flu-related illnesses. So there is a difference between the two. And then finally, when do I need to get the flu shot? I thought this was a very relevant topic because flu season is coming up. But flu season is actually just around December to March is around the time. And we start giving flu shots around October because it takes about two weeks for your body to develop the immunity for it. We're trying to prepare you for that peak time in flu season. So I don't think uh, flu shots are available just yet, but they're coming out in the next couple of weeks. So this would be around the time that you would want to get flu shots in order to get the best benefit out of it throughout this flu season. 
and you need to get the flu shot every year for two reasons. One is the immunity that the vaccine gives you doesn't, uh, it, it declines over time. So after a year, you need to get another one. And also the viruses that they predict are going to be going around next year may not be the same as the ones this year. And finally, it's never too late. So let's say you missed the October deadline that I've put up here. It, the flu season still lasts until March. And you can, you can really get sick at any time of year, even though this is the peak. So at any time, you can get the flu shot. And I think that concludes my part of the presentation. Thank you all so much. And I'm just going to pass the microphone over to Dr. Lowe here. So thank you. We'll save up the questions till the end. And uh, we can have a barrage of different questions, because I will be covering a few different topics as well. And so we can mix them all together and uh, and cover that off. So everybody can hear me okay? All right, that's good. I might move around a little bit, so I try to keep everybody's attention by moving. I'm going to talk a little bit about pharmaceuticals in general and how to stay healthy, as well as making your own decisions. And this is really big, and it's certainly no different with uh, the flu and your flu vaccines as well. You have the decision to take or not take it. There's certainly compelling reasons to consider it. And then when you do decide to, then there's a couple of options. Uh, Alyssa talked about the high-dose version versus the regular publicly funded one. But you do have the choice. And oftentimes, um, people work very quickly and don't give you choices. And that's what I want to talk about, is about choices and why you want to make a choice. So we talk about drugs a lot, and many of you may be taking some medications, but drugs are both good and bad. If they're going to have an effect on your body that's a good effect, well, it can have a bad effect too. And that's because we're all individuals. We're all a little bit different. We all need different doses, and we all respond to different drugs differently. So I'll give you one example. Aspirin, ASA. Some of you might be taking that as well, and it's been studied and looked at, and it actually improves cardiovascular health. It prevents deaths. So we think of it as a really good thing, but there's always risks associated with it. When they've done those studies, they've found that the risks, they're few, but they're still there. And so what it means is that you should really be on this medication if you have very high risk. So currently the recommendations are it's not everybody who's older should be taking an aspirin a day. It's only those with a cardiovascular history or a cardiovascular disease background. So if you have risk and there is a cardiovascular problem that you do have and your doctor recommends it, your chances of benefiting are 1 in 50. So you heard about the flu vaccine where you need to treat 200 people to benefit one. For aspirin, if you have risk, you only need to treat 50 people to benefit one. No drug is 100% effective. All right, It's just the way that it is because we're all different. And that's why there's multiple drugs out there. But to put it into perspective, you need to know the numbers, you need to understand the risks and benefits, and there are a number of bleeding risks with aspirin. So there are actually deaths that do occur, and it is a result of a low-dose aspirin taken over a long period of time. They're due to coagulation-type issues, stomach ulcers, intracranial bleeds, those kinds of things. They are rare. They happen less frequently than the many people it protects. But again, it comes down to you making a decision. How do you feel? What do you feel about the risk? And we're all kind of different. And if you're unsure, certainly, certainly your healthcare professional will give you a recommendation of what they think is best for you. But no one really knows your own preferences. And everybody's a little bit different. So again, this is where I'd like you to think about making your own decisions, where you can ask the questions and make sure you get all the information. This graph just shows on one side, it's plotting the benefits. So this is the number of vascular issues or cardiovascular events. So the white circles are the benefits that occur. And these 
gray squares are the adverse effects that occur that are bleeding side effects. So as you increase time and increase the dose, the benefit also goes up, but so does the side effects. The benefits are generally always more often, but there are also side effects that are associated with it. And so this just gives you the idea that not every drug is safe. Every drug works that's been approved by Health Canada because that's what they look for. They look for efficacy and safety, so they all work, but they all have some risks as well. And you have to put it in, into perspective. It doesn't mean to stop the drugs, and I'm not suggesting that you don't continue them. I'm talking about properly assessing them that you need it, that you're getting the most benefit from it. If someone is very healthy, has no cardiovascular background, hasn't had a heart attack, doesn't have a family history, and you take an aspirin a day, your risks are probably bigger than the benefits of it. Because the bleeding risk is still there. It doesn't matter whether you're healthy or ill, bleeding risk is going to be there. But you're not going to get the benefit from the drug because you don't have a cardiovascular history. There is no particular need that having an antiplatelet effect in your body that is thinning your blood a little bit is going to benefit you because you're not really at higher risk than the normal population for a cardiovascular event. So you're taking something to try to prevent a very low risk anyways, and that means that you might need over a thousand people taking that drug that are of that healthy type before you can benefit one. There's still probably a tiny little benefit but you're going to have to be one in a thousand versus the one in 50. So this is just playing with the odds a little bit. Certainly, if you are more at risk, you can get more of a benefit. So chronic conditions occur more commonly with age. And as we age, we're going to end up having more conditions, more drugs. And I want to use this particular example to highlight some of this, and that is with hypertension. Everybody's familiar with hypertension. High blood pressure, pretty straightforward. You have high blood pressure, you take a drug. Anybody know why? We take a drug to lower our hypertension, our blood pressure. You feel exactly the same. You take the drug, your blood pressure goes down, but you feel the same, right? You don't actually feel better. Some people actually feel worse because your blood pressure goes too low. Now, if your blood pressure is crazy high, yes, you'll feel something. But I'm talking your regular run-of-the-mill blood pressure that's high. You actually feel pretty much the same. But has anyone told you or have you heard why we take high blood pressure pills? Reduce the strain in the heart. Yeah, so we can prevent heart attacks and we can also prevent strokes. So that's the main use for it, all right? The benefit of taking that blood pressure pill, and as Alyssa was mentioning, highlighting those different kinds of numbers, you will hear your healthcare professional tell you that it decreases your risk of a stroke by 50%, 5-0. And that is accurate and that is in studies, all right? If you're of average risk and have high blood pressure, that's what we can do by giving you a high blood pressure pill. But in actual studies, when we see and treat patients, what happens from a number needed to treat or how many people have to be treated to benefit one, it's 75. So if no, if none of those 75 patients took a blood pressure pill and they have high blood pressure, two people get a stroke. If all 75 take the blood pressure pill, one person gets a stroke. It is a 50% reduction, which sounds powerful, but it's also one in 75. But as Alyssa mentioned, if you're that one person who's going to get it, you do want the drug, and we can't predict. What we can predict is if you have these risk factors, it's 1 in 75. If you didn't have those risk factors, we gave blood pressure pills to everybody, we might have to treat 5,000 people before we even benefit one because they don't have the risk. There's no reason for them to have a stroke, so giving them a high blood pressure pill might not benefit them. But everyone's going to get the potential for side effects because it's going to lower the pressure. So for some people, it's too powerful. They get dizzy, they get lightheaded, and they can fall. So all drugs have a good effect. They also can have a bad effect. Hypertension is 
quite common in 2007. The data in Canada says that 21 million visits to the family doctor was for high blood pressure. Now, it's very frequent as we age. The lifetime risk for developing hypertension in adults age 55 to 65 is actually 90%. So those that are age 55 to 60 today, in their lifetime, 90% of those people will get high blood pressure. And it's just because as we age, our arteries and blood vessels, they stiffen. And as they stiffen, we start to get high blood pressure. They're not elastic enough to absorb the pressure, and it just goes up. There's other reasons as well. We have uh, atherosclerosis, little fat deposits. They narrow down the arteries and veins, and of course, that also leads to high blood pressure. So it is a very common condition, so I thought uh, that would be a very useful example for you, for you to see. Um, however, something that doesn't often get talked about, uh, does in some offices when the physicians look at the hypertension, and that is 30% of hypertension is actually related to high salt intake. That means too much sodium. Now, we all enjoy our sodium. I love salt too. I don't add extra salt to my soups, but I do add extra salt to a few other things, and, and it does make it taste better. It's really hard to cut out so sodium, so it's a balance though. So do you want to take a drug to lower that blood pressure, or can you do something about reducing your salt? And I know people give you recommendations about reducing salt, and you don't know exactly how to do it and, and things like that. Well, maybe you start off with things with no salt added, and all you do is keep a little container each day of one teaspoon of salt. And that's all you get for the whole day. You can't add any more. That's one way to do that and start reducing it. All right, the average person should be consuming five grams, which is about a teaspoon, or less. But you have to start with something that has no salt in it. Most soups already have a teaspoon in there in one bowl of soup, or maybe not quite, half a teaspoon in one bowl of soup. That's pretty average. So if you start off with things that say in it that says no salt added, well, that's where you go and you can use that one teaspoon of salt in your little bottle, carry it around and sprinkle that on, and that's all you get. If you're restricted or your blood pressure is still not dropping, Cut that down to half a teaspoon, and that's all you get for the day. But that's a practical way of looking at it rather than, in a, I know healthcare professionals and early in my career did the same thing. I would tell people, decrease your salt intake, and then just leave it at that. And you walk away and go, how do I do that? You know, yes, it's all good and handy that you say that decrease my salt, but how exactly do I go about doing it? And this is just one practical way. And again, um, you can talk to other healthcare providers, a dietitian, pharmacist, nurse who can help you with uh, guiding you a little bit more. So according to a survey in 2004, 90% of men and 65% of women over the age of 19 exceeded the levels of sodium that led to potentially adverse effects. So it just shows that in Canada, we do consume a lot of salt. We've known it for a very long time. We keep trying to pass different rules to the food industry to restrict and decrease the sodium content. Um, some of it passes and gets uh, Im implemented, but others do not. Um, hypertension is also the number one reason why people are taking a drug. So there are 4 million Canadians who are taking medications for hypertension uh, every day. So it is very common. And uh, if we look at the numbers currently, approximately 50% of those over 60 are on an antihypertensive medication. Now, did you know there are 47 different drugs that can lower your blood pressure? 47 different chemicals. We're not just talking different strength. 47 different chemicals that lower your blood pressure. Not only that, they range in price from 40 cents per month. I'm just talking about the drug price, so not dispensing fees, not part of it. 40 cents per month to $45 per month. 
And this is where you need to ask questions to get the right information to make a choice. Out of those 47, I guarantee it, nobody has talked to that person newly diagnosed with high blood pressure about all 47 chemicals. To include their preferences, to include their coverage, to include what they're willing or not willing to pay for, and which side effects that they can handle a little bit better than others. So if, for example, you didn't want to take a drug three times a day, there are one times a day options. Or maybe you do want to take it twice a day because you'll remember. And that way, if you skip one, you haven't missed a whole day of doses. You want a drug that's twice a day. Well, there are those too. But again, you've got to express your preferences. You've got to ask the questions and somebody's got to respond to you who's educated and qualified to explain that to you. And you have the choices. The 47 different chemicals out there. So these are medications that reduce your risk of the stroke and heart attack we talked about. And each person has their own preferences of first, whether I want to take it or not. And this is not a decision that you're affecting other people. Maybe your family members, if they got to care for you, if something bad happens, all that kind of stuff. But again, the flu shot, something a little bit different, because as you take it, you actually prevent and protect the ones around you. Because if you don't get the flu, you don't spread it to anyone else either. So some people count on what they call herd immunity with vaccines. That means if everybody else is vaccinated and I'm not, I'm protected. And that's true. But as soon as you get two people unprotected and this person contracts it, if they happen to run into that person and flu is a little bit different, you can be a carrier. The herd immunity doesn't work quite well in that you're a carrier of it, but you won't get infected. You can still spread it, but not as easily because you don't get infected, so you're not sneezing. But it's sitting around until your body gets rid of it. If you happen to contract it from somewhere, it'll be in your body a little bit. and You can still spread it. So herd immunity doesn't quite work for the flu, but it does work for things like measles and other uh, vaccinations that are out there. So a couple decisions that you make, not only for yourself, but for the community around you as well when you make decisions about something like vaccines. So here's some questions that should be common sense, but I don't think enough people or patients ask their doctor or pharmacist about it. So when you are getting a medication, you ask, what can I do besides taking a medication? Seems straightforward and simple. But many of us don't actually ask because sometimes us healthcare professionals, we make assumptions. We think that you don't really want to decrease your salt. Well, maybe no, nobody ever told you about that. We assume that you read it somewhere, but maybe not. And if you don't ask, all the other options that are non-drug may not be explained to you. So sometimes you do have to ask. And we're just so rushed nowadays, I guess, in the whole healthcare arena. Um, there's lineups, there's weights long waits. You see emergency waits are up to 12 hours. And, you know, all the healthcare professionals are very busy. But if you ask the question, they are obliged to answer. And so, you know, seek that help. Other questions that you can ask, what are the benefits or sorry, what the benefits of the drugs are? Because as I asked before, people took a hypertension drug, not really knowing how it helps them other than lowering blood pressure. It's actually not the lowering blood pressure we're so interested in. We're interested in the decrease in strokes and the decrease in heart attacks. That's the main goal. This blood pressure, it just happens to be what we call a surrogate marker. That means it's the indirect way we kind of watch, but it's to decrease strokes and decrease heart attacks. That is the main reason. So you need to know what exactly the benefits are and those numbers we talked about. What are the numbers? How likely is it to benefit me? How likely am I to get side effects? So that's the, what are the risks of taking the drug? So you need to understand the side effects and the risks associated. And that might also be the cost because there's also costs associated and that's also like a risk. Then a slightly different way of asking the question. And that is, what is the risks of me not taking the medication? 
And I don't think many people ask about that one. We often assume that, you know, and the data also tells us that, you know, up to a third of people don't fill their prescriptions. Did you know that? People get it. They go to the doctor, they get it, and they don't fill it. I'm almost pretty sure that everyone in this room probably missed filling at least one prescription that they had written, and it's just sitting there on the shelf, and you find it a year later and go, I didn't fill this, and, and it happens. And the data tells us one third. That's pretty high. So why not ask what happens if I don't take this medication? And sometimes it's more significant than others. And certainly we don't want to interrupt therapy. As our body gets used to drugs, you don't want to suddenly stop a drug. You want to know what the different options are. So for hypertension, there's 47 chemicals. It's not the case for every condition. Some they're fewer, some they're more. Also, you want to ask, why might I take this one over another one? And so once you have those options presented to you, and likely your doctor or pharmacist would be able to narrow it down to say, based on what I know about you, based on your background history, all these things, it's maybe these three, these four. And then you can start to assess what those differences are and what's most important to you. It might be a cost issue. It might be a side effect issue. It might be the size of the tablet. I've had some patients who cannot swallow very well once the tablet gets too big. Well, you know what? Out of 47 chemicals for hypertension, there's one that's really tiny. And if I knew you had trouble swallowing, I could pick out the one that's smaller for you to take, that's easier. But if you didn't say anything, and you don't say anything to the physician, you get this prescription. And they didn't know you had trouble swallowing. You didn't happen to mention it, and you swallowed all the other pills fine, but all the other pills were small. You're just starting this new one. And so again, that communication is, is critical to talk with your healthcare provider. I'm going to shift gears a little bit because as I talk about safety and the effectiveness of drugs, some think that alternative therapies like supplements and other herbals and things like that are ultra safe. But I go back to the fact that if it has a good effect, it can have a bad effect. Whether that be reflexology, acupuncture, manipulation of the body, various forms of energy transfer, um, different herbals, different supplements. If you expect it to have a good effect, and since everyone is different and everyone requires a different amount and a different dose, if those are wrong, you could have a bad effect. So there is no such thing as an herbal that gives you no side effects, except for the herbal or the thing that doesn't do anything to your body. So if it's not going to do anything, you're right. No good effect, no bad effect. It's not going to do anything except drain your wallet a little bit because they're generally pretty expensive. They're not cheap. And you know what? The government doesn't pay for them. And most private plans, insurance plans don't pay for them because they don't believe in it and there's not enough data. So that is the trouble with some of these alternative medications is that there's very little data out there to actually study. There's very little comparison of comparing it with a sugar pill or a placebo and randomly assigning to the treatment and measuring out the outcomes. So without that kind of study, what we have is a lot of what they call anecdotal evidence. Somebody takes it and say, and they say, I feel great. I took this. It changed my life. It did this. And you see it on TV. You see it on these night programs. But that's anecdotal. That means it did that for one person. But you're not that person. Maybe. You know, maybe it's fake news, right? You don't know. So... It's very hard when it's not a study and when it's not randomized and not blinded. So blinded means you don't know what you're taking. Only the investigators know what you're taking. And what you're taking is you have no idea, so you're going to have the effects that you have. Because there's a very strong placebo effect. When you tell people it's going to help you or if you do something. So they've done the study before. We've controlled pain with injecting saline. Because there is perception that if you get a needle, it's got to work. It's really powerful if you get a needle. And they just injected saline, which is just salt water. And people had pain control. 
because it's a perceptible, subjective kind of measurement. Um, the power of the mind, it just shows you how powerful it is. So as with drugs, if they can have a good effect, they can also have a bad effect. So don't think about alternatives and these complementary type medicines as uh, being completely safe. So the data is quite poor. Um, many of the claims that are made aren't actually regulated. Being not a prescription drug, the regulations drop way down. So when you enter your average health food store, there could be signs and advertisements that say all sorts of things, which when you're unregulated, you can do it because you're just a regular person. So if you want to say that this shoe will make you run a marathon, you could say stuff like that. And if you want to say that this supplement is going to help you run a marathon, you could say that too. However, for a physician and a pharmacist and other licensed professionals, they can't say stuff that are not true or proven to be not true and not clear and not accurate. They aren't allowed to do that. They're bound by ethics. They have a license. And if they're a licensed practitioner, it means they went through a whole bunch of some kind of formal training. They have to. And they have also gone through some sort of testing. You don't get a license without some sort of an exam test or hands-on test. So licensed professionals are more trustworthy when you start getting into your health. When you're walking into a health food store, if that person doesn't have a license, which usually they don't, um, they can say anything because they're not bound or held liable by anything, by any certifications. So do think about that before you make your decisions. Here's some other things to think about uh, from a supplement point of view. Are you actually getting what you're promised? So you pick up a bottle of vitamins. It's going to say that it has a certain strength. It's going to say that it has a certain number of tablets. The tablet count is almost always correct. They don't fool around with that one. However, what's actually in it may not be. So this was back uh, in C CBC about three years ago. But fish oils, vitamin C, and some protein powder that uh, people spend billions on in Canada, um, Canada Marketplace did a test on it. And what they did was that they found that uh, many of these didn't live up to what was promised on the label. And in fact, the products that they tested, none of them actually had what it said on the label. Now, none is kind of rare. Maybe they just picked a few, but if you did enough, it shouldn't be none, but it's not surprising. It's very uncontrolled because if they are unregulated, if they don't have a DIN number, that even puts it into a lower category of being a food supplement. And in foods, when you buy something that's a food, there's no guarantee that it's got a vitamin in there. So even though you think you grab your orange, you've got an orange, it's probably got some vitamin C in there, but nobody, they can say anything they want. This is 500 milligrams. This is 100 milligrams. This has a lot. This has a little. There's no control. It's a food item. There's no requirement. There's no regulation when it talks about content because we know it varies. It's natural. So being a natural herbal product, guess what? There is very little and not very stringent recommendations on it. And this is a quote, I guess, from that uh, CBC broadcast. They said, a little bit of vitamin and a lot of sugar. That's exactly the quote that they kind of had. Here's another one where, again, C CBC did an investigation and they acknowledge weak evidence for approval of herbals, vitamin supplements, and this was reported by the Fifth Estate. And what they mean by acknowledging weak evidence is with over-the-counter medications. They don't need the same rigorous testing as prescription medications do. There's a reason why they're over-the-counter, because they are perceived to be safer. That is, they don't really have much of an effect either way. But if you were to take huge doses of it, it will, because you're going to compound these things. So we actually did, did a study. I'm part of an investigator group who actually wanted to learn a little bit more about this whole content labeling. Because as healthcare providers, sometimes we do depend on over-the-counter treatments. We want to make sure they contain what they contain, because we use it to treat something. And vitamin D 
happen to be one of these uh, treatments. So when someone is low on their vitamin D or they have fracture issues or we assess them and it seems like they're not getting enough vitamin D because they're in long-term care facilities, they don't go outside very much or they cover up a lot because you need sunlight to really convert. Although there's a new machine that's uh, coming out where you can actually walk into a machine, get some ultraviolet rays from it, very specific ultraviolet rays and produce vitamin D. But anyways, vitamin D is something very important to our bodies and we wanted to just test it. So we got 20 different samples of vitamin D from different stores and got a few bottles of each from different places. And then we did some testing on it to see what it contained. And this might be a little bit small for you to see, um, but essentially the range of its content Right, so these were bottles that stated they either had 400 units of vitamin D in it, up to 1,000 units of vitamin D in it. And out of the 13 that we studied rigorously, it ranged from some bottles that had only 8%, 8% of what they said that they should have. Others did range up to 120%, but that was only one of them. Most of them were all below. 80% of the product, in fact, had less than 80%. And the requirement by Health Canada is it should be 98 to 110. So they give them a little bit of latitude. You can move around a little bit because it can't be that precise. But that's far from 98 to 110%. That is way off. And as healthcare providers, we're now quite concerned because we depend on this. When somebody's low in vitamin D, we put them on a vitamin D supplement and we hope that it normalizes. And when we don't see it normalize, we think it's the patient and something's going on there. But it's not. It has to do with this as well. And we didn't have enough samples to really go and say which one is the best or the worst. Um, we'd have to have multiple iterations to do that and also to avoid lawsuits because the companies won't like us if we pointed out anybody to be bad. But we did use this and Health Canada has made some or taken some action to be more stringent in certain areas because we were telling them that how is this happening? We've measured it and here, please deal with it because you do the approval process. And, you know, it's okay that they can look into it further because they charge fees for applications as well. So either somebody's not doing their job or somebody is faking it or doing something a little bit different and Health Canada needs to know and needs to then clamp down on it. So we've taken that to Health Canada. We've followed up with them kind of on a yearly basis. Uh, this was published in 2015 and we've followed up with them each year and they have started increasing their scrutiny on good manufacturing practices on their certificates of analysis that they want sent to them and those kinds of things. There's still far and lots more to do, but at least it's a good start. So um, these vitamin Ds, as I was telling you, 98 to 110% is what the requirement is. That's uh, that slide to put that up. I do want to shift gears a little bit and just talk about a case with echinacea. Many of you may have heard about echinacea, and this just helps to illustrate how someone and maybe your, your friend um, can fall into this kind of slippery slope. So here's a real case. It's a patient uh, who decided to take echinacea purpurea for what she thought was a cold that was coming on. So she was feeling a little bit sick, tickle in the throat, weakness, uh, some fatigue. Her joints seemed to hurt a little bit. They seemed a little bit swollen. She had no energy and felt weak. So she started take, taking echinacea. It didn't seem to work. So she increased the dose because when you read the internet, there are some suggestions out there. And this is why I got to be careful with internet information that's not from a valid source that she started to increase the dose. And she thought she started feeling better. So she kept at that high increased dose and she kept going on. And then she got a higher potency version because she didn't want to take four tablets. She found a higher 
stronger strength. And so she could take fewer tablets and kept going on with it. And she started doing that over a year. And then there were some ups and downs. So she would get worse and she felt sick again and felt like another cold was coming, but the never, she never got the cold. Okay. So it worked, exactly. And she kept upping the dose because when it started to come on, must have been that the dose is too low. So over a year, she continued to do that until after that one year of pretty high dose, she felt really bad. She couldn't get out of bed and she ended up in hospital. When she got to hospital, they did a full workup and what they diagnosed her with was with rheumatoid arthritis. That joint pain, that weakness, that fatigue, that stuff that she had was actually rheumatoid arthritis that she thought was a cold coming on. The reason a cold never came on was it wasn't ever a cold. It was rheumatoid arthritis. And you know what that arthritis does? It comes and goes. You are in remission where things are kind of calm and your body's able to control it. And then it can get worse where you have a relapse. So she just coincided that with this upping of the dose of echinacea. And here's the real other problem with the echinacea is at high doses, we already do know this. It's associated with liver damage. So she was also diagnosed with an inflammatory liver Luckily, it's acute, it's reversible, but it already damaged part of the liver. Now, whether that liver is going to recover is unknown. Now, our liver has got high capacity. You could actually destroy 50% of your liver and totally not notice. Your kidneys are different. If you were to remove 50% of your kidney capacity, you will notice. You've got to change your eating, your electrolytes go off, things happen. But a liver, there's lots of capacity. But this echinacea can cause harm, so these herbals aren't without problems. I'm going to talk about another case that you might find interesting, and that is a case of coenzyme Q10. So let me give you a bit of background about it. Coenzyme Q10, it's a nutrient that's naturally occurring in our bodies. It's present in some foods. It has antioxidant properties, and oftentimes people want these antioxidants. And it's been associated, that means anecdotal kind of evidence, associated with helping in many conditions like Alzheimer's, like blood pressure, increasing energy level. Um, in, used in heart conditions, reducing migraine headaches, reducing pain. The list goes on. This is just more of the more common uses. They've actually studied it in cancer, studied it in muscular dystrophy, Parkinson's disease, and some other diseases as well, but they've always been inconclusive. That means the benefit is just marginal, so it's really hard to eke out. And a lot of times the reason that is explained why they couldn't see a difference was the study was too small. And that's true. I'll take it to the other extreme that if you study five people and it doesn't work, it doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It could work, but it just wasn't enough people. You really need a large number of people to see it. And this is no different from you flipping a coin, just to illustrate why we need lots of people. It's very possible that if you flip the coin three times, you could get three heads. Very possible. And you would think that this coin must have only heads on it because you only flipped it three times. If you flipped it a hundred times, there's no way that a hundred times you would get a hundred heads. If you do, buy several lottery tickets in a few different provinces. Um, but you get what I'm saying. So this is why they're inconclusive. And you still don't know, did it work or didn't work? Well, the study wasn't big enough, and we didn't do it properly, and all of these things. So people continue to use it. It didn't say it didn't work. It was inconclusive. Doses range anywhere from 50 milligrams to 1,200 milligrams a day. And this drug, or coenzyme Q10, can interact with a number of drugs. And we know this, and this has been proven in studies. Patients who take it, we do see changes in their blood clotting who are taking warfarin. Changes in their thyroid levels who are taking thyroid medications. It affects chemotherapy. It can affect your blood sugar level and medications that control the blood sugar. So interactions are also clearly there. And I had a chance to see Mrs. M. This was several years ago. And... 
she came to see, see me to discuss her medications. She felt she was on too many medications and it included supplements as well. And I'm just gonna focus in on this coenzyme Q10 that she was taking for energy. So this was her reason for taking it. It was for energy, that was her words. She was spending about $40 a month because she was on a medium to high dose. And when, she, when I asked her if it was working, she assumed it was working. She was pretty sure it was working because she was feeling pretty good and doing pretty good things. And she remembered years ago when she started it, it kind of made a difference in her life. Well, we talked about it some more and I explained to her how drugs can have good effects, bad effects. These are not well proven. We don't know if it's working for you. And I convinced her to actually do something called an N of one study. Anyone hear of an N of one study? That means you do a study in yourself. You're the one. So it's not studying multiple people, but you know, it's in you. So if it works, it works in you. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work in you. And how we did this N of one study. So with Mrs. M, we tried her on a period of the coenzyme Q10 and then off of the coenzyme Q10. To logistically do this, she stops the drug for two weeks. And then what we did was we repackaged her medications into an opaque capsule so she couldn't tell what it was. And I told her, I'm not going to tell you what you're taking. Okay. All you know is that after your two weeks of taking or coming off of this coenzyme Q10, you're going to go for eight weeks of with coenzyme Q10 and eight weeks of without. But you don't know which is coming first. I'm not going to tell you. But I will give you this envelope that tells you what you're taking, just in case you end up going to emerge, just in case you really need to know. You rip open the envelope, it'll tell you what you're taking in those capsules that I've prepared. So she's now blinded as to what she's taking. And, but I'm not, exactly. And she's got an envelope as well, just in case. So she can also fi find out. I give her a diary of what to follow. Because you gotta measure something if you're gonna do a study. So she had a diary with a number of things, and for her, because it was an energy-related thing, I asked her what her favorite hobbies were, what she does through, through the day consistently. So something that you do on a daily basis. Gardening was one of the things that she did. So told her to rate her gardening, her energy level, how long she did it, how she felt doing it. Very simple gauges, just measure it from zero to 10. 10 being just excellent, did it for a long, and write down the duration. So actual numbers and hours, so you gotta measure, so you're part of a study for yourself, and just keep measuring. So. We put, put her onto this. She came off of her coenzyme Q10 for two weeks and then start, started. And so we had to talk about this and the results. Well, when she stopped the supplement for those two weeks of stopping, she thought she felt a little bit slower compared to being on it. Okay, that's fair. Now let's start. I'm not going to tell you what you're taking. You're getting either a sugar pill. I filled it with some lactose or you're going to get your coenzyme Q10. Well, when she restarted the test supplement number one, she felt a little bit better. And then when she switched to supplement number two, she felt a little bit worse. Which supplement do you think was number two that she felt worse on? It was the Q10. She went back on the Q10. So it was actually causing her some side effects, but she didn't know. She didn't realize it was actually causing some side effects that she interpreted as slowing her down. So after this, of course, she decided that she would stop and she saved herself $500 a year on that one supplement because she was paying $40 a month on it. And that's pretty typical of many of these supplements. $40 a month is pretty typical. And I have patients who come in with their bag full and I add it all up. It's about $200 a month. That is, is pretty typical when you've got a bag full. But these supplements have a very strong psychological component. So you do need to keep that in mind that it's, there's a lot of psychology behind it. And in Canada and in most developed uh, countries, we have this, I guess, psychology of using a medicine for everything. 
So there's a lot of over-medication out there, and there's a few groups that end up, uh, oh yes, that uh, um, do contribute to that. The doctors keep refilling it. Patients keep asking for it. So what we actually need to do is to go out there to try to stop it.